This Valentine's Day, Dunkin's got the perfect pairings to show your love. So get down on one knee with a dozen brownie batter donuts and a cocoa mocha signature latte. Or make them swoon with a strawberry dragon fruit Dunkin' refresher with a Cupid's Choice Donut. Are you ready for love? America runs on Dunkin'. Price and participation may vary. Limited time offer. This is Aaron Ahuvia, author of The Things We Love, How Our Passions Connect Us and Make Us Who We Are. And you are listening to The Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to The Marketing Book Podcast helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, where each week I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book, and which has been named as one of the top marketing podcasts by Forbes and LinkedIn, amongst others. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable on this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since I get to read every book featured on the show, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or any other resource I know of for whatever challenge you're facing, send me a LinkedIn connection invite with a message that you're a listener, and I will do my best to get you pointed in the right direction. My name again is Douglas Burdett. This episode is sponsored by Marketing Architects, creators of the all-inclusive TV advertising concept that's so revolutionary, they wrote a book about it. I'll tell you more and how to get a free copy of the book in a few minutes. Now, let's get on with the show. Today, we welcome Dr. Aaron Ahuvia to talk about his book, The Things We Love, How Our Passions Connect Us and Make Us Who We Are, published by Little Brown Spark. Dr. Aaron Ahuvia is a professor of marketing at the University of Michigan, Dearborn College of Business, and the most widely published and cited academic expert on non-interpersonal love, including brand love. He's also a leading expert on how our happiness is influenced by money and materialism. He has been ranked number 22 in the world for research impact and consumer behavior and ranked in the top 2% of all scientists in the world across all disciplines by an independent study from Stanford University. Professor Ahuvia studied philosophy at the University of Michigan before getting a PhD in marketing from Northwestern University's Kellogg School of Management. From there, he became a professor at the University of Michigan's Ross School of Business and then a full professor at the College of Business at University of Michigan's Dearborn campus. Dr. Ahuvia also holds an appointment as a professor at the University of Michigan Penny W. Stamps School of Art and Design. Dr. Ahuvia has over 100 publications and presentations. He does research, teaches, and consults for governments, nonprofits, and corporations around the world. And he has presented research or consulted for... Companies like Google, L'Oreal, Samsung, Maybelline, Procter & Gamble, Audi, General Motors, Microsoft, Ford, Chrysler, and many others. And interesting fact, he was once a guest on the Oprah Winfrey TV show. Dr. Ahuvia, congratulations on the things we love and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast. Well, thank you so much for having me. So you were on the Oprah Winfrey show and now... You're on the Marketing Book Podcast, and this reminds me of a buddy of mine that I worked with at J. Walter Thompson, New York, back in the 1980s, Adam Turtletaub. He had worked for Senator Patrick Moynihan on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C., and he decided he wanted to go into advertising. And he went up and interviewed at the agency, and they said, why do you want to go from politics to advertising? To which he responded, well, I don't feel like I've hit bottom yet. <laughs> That's excellent. They hired him immediately. So 
I can only imagine, Dr. Ahuvia, that you, you must really feel like you're, you're hitting bottom now. So when you were on the Oprah Winfrey show, is it true that she also gave you a free car? She did not. I did not get a free car out oh. of the whole thing. I did not. But I would say that the way I see it is I'm moving up in the world. Oh. I don't know where else there could be to go after this. That's the problem. Well, thank you. I mean, there's lots of great podcasts out there. I'm just kidding because uh, I'm I'm no Oprah, but, you know, an admirer of hers and what, and what she's done. So it, before we go further, though, please explain why you were on Oprah because I don't know that Many or any of the over 300 guests I've had on the show over the years have, have been on, the, uh, on Oprah's TV show. Okay, so I was a PhD student uh, at Kellogg in marketing, studying with Professor Kotler. Long story short, with his encouragement, I set out doing some research on dating services with a Professor Mara Edelman. And together, uh, this was just when they were getting going and, and internet dating was just uh, starting actually before internet dating got started. And together we became the world's leading experts on dating services, which wasn't really hard because we were also the world's only experts on dating <laughs> hey, services. whatever it takes. <laughs> whatever it takes. Yeah. And so dating services was a topic of great interest to Oprah on her show. So she invited me on uh, to talk about singles ads and that was really, um, you know, a great time. I had a lot of media about that stuff. But when I was finished, you know, getting ready to work on my PhD and choose a thesis, I needed something that would be a little bit more mainstream. If I, I felt that I would not get a job at a good business school being the <laughs> dating service professor. Right. Uh, but I'd already done years at that point of depth research on the psychology of love and why people love fall in love with other people and dating. And I didn't want to forego all of that acquired knowledge. So it occurred to me, well, people love products, people love brands. What if I take that knowledge and, and see how it connects to products and brands? And that's really where it all started uh, now a little over 30 years ago. Interesting. Yeah. So then you went on to get your PhD uh, after that. But when you were at Northwestern University, as you mentioned, Philip Kotler was one of your professors. And uh, as a result, you, you mentioned years later, you went to give a talk in Kazakhstan and hundreds of people showed up. And you write that they showed up because, not necessarily because of you, but because you were one of his students. Is that right? That is completely true. I remember walking into that auditorium and looking around and being like, WTF, why are, they, why are these people here? Why, <laughs> what brought them here? Well, um, you didn't realize how awesome and, you were. Really. And then I uh, was shown the poster. And the poster was all about, for the advertising my talk, was all about how I was a student of Professor Kotler. And he really is astonishingly well-known around the world. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. So he's, he's very well known in the US, but believe it or not, he's actually even better known, you know, just about every place else. So it's very fun. Yes. And Dr. Kotler is a member of the Marketing Book Podcast Three Timers Club. So because of that, he's added that to his bio, of course, and mainly he's getting discount uh, coupons at, at all Taco Bells where he lives in, uh, you know, Chicago and Florida. So, you know... Just, just something to put out there, you know, for you think, if you think about writing some more books, 
you know, there's a goal for you. Well, I, I was wondering, that answers my question, you know, if I've moved up from Oprah to the Marketing Book Podcast, <laughs> what could I, how could I do something in the future? And clearly the answer is just do more of <laughs> right. the Marketing Book Podcast. Well, yeah, but also this topic is so interesting. Now, just one question though, when you were in Kazakhstan, did you by any chance meet a uh, journalist by the name of Borat? <laughs> I, I will say I get Borat jokes all the time because of uh, I, worked, I did a little project in Kazakhstan. And what's funny is the actual people of Kazakhstan could not possibly be more different from the Borat character because um, he is extremely loud and sort of crazy and in your face. And the indigenous culture in Kazakhstan is this uh, pastoral, sort of horse-based pastoral culture where people spend a lot of time alone and they have a tendency, they'll get together for, say, a meal and there'll just be a lot of silence at the table. That's perfectly okay. Then somebody will say something and someone will reply. And then there's just a minute or two more of silence. Um, and so it's a, it's a very kind of quiet place. And it's nice in that regard. Nice. So that actor, Sasha Baron Cohen, he, he may have never even been to Kazakhstan. And I can remember when that movie came out, the embassy of Kazakhstan was running ads saying, look, this is not what we're at all... <laughs> At all alike, you know, we're not we're not at all like this. So, anyway, but when I see Kazakhstan, you know, the one thing I did learn from that uh, movie is that it is the number one exporter of potassium. So, just a quick shout out to Dr. Zoe Chance. Uh, I learned about your book from interviewing her uh, about her new book, "Influences Your Superpower," and so I appreciate her getting us connected. And one other thing, uh, some of the listeners, uh, you know, already know that I'm going to be interviewing you, and they they asked a series of questions. One of them is, so you're an expert on love, and you have a PhD, you're a doctor. Is it true that the rock band Kiss wrote their song, Dr. Love, about you? Absolutely. That's completely correct. Oh, that's what I thought. Yeah, that's just awesome. Awesome. And good for you. And uh, the, the other thing the listeners asked is that at your home in Ann Arbor, do you, do you refer to your house as the Love Shack? I will now. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Okay. Well, anyway, enough jokes. I've got about 50 of them here. And as a favor to the listener, I'm not going to tell any more of them, except that I have a good feeling about this interview because I am in Virginia right now. And as you probably know, Dr. Virginia is for lovers. Absolutely. I can't, I can't believe that's not one of your clients, having you come and, and consult with them. Let me just quote from um, uh, one part at the beginning of the book, page four, actually. You write, although I'm a marketing professor, my research has always been grounded in psychology, philosophy, and sociology. In my PhD program, there was a saying, we study consumers the way marine biologists study fish not the way fishermen study fish. In keeping with that idea, this book is written for anyone curious about what love is and how it works. You will find a science-based exploration of the psychology of loving things rather than a how-to marketing book. That said, it's 
wonderful when businesses, artists, and nonprofit organizations focus on producing things that people truly love. The insights in this book will be useful to anyone committed to that sort of mission. And then on the next uh, page six, you write, whether you're a hobbyist, a nature lover, a marketer, a designer, an entrepreneur, a sports fan, or a music lover, or if you're passionate about something else, I hope you find something in this book that gives you insight into yourself and other people and helps you lead a richer life. So I just want to underscore for the listener, this is not, as I mentioned there, this is not a how-to marketing book, but it's one of the most (laughs) interesting books I've read in some time, and I really enjoyed it. It's a little bit of a departure uh, for the host, and even I need to read, you know, some, some different kinds of books. But let me ask this. You write, even though the title of this book is The Things We Love, it's not really about things. It's about people. Explain what you mean there. So a colleague of mine um, who is a a little senior to me, Russell Belk, uh, is an inspiration to me. And he has this observation from his work. He says, every time you look at a relationship and it looks like it's a person-thing relationship, so it's me connected to my cell phone, when you look more closely, scratch a little bit more deeply, it always turns out to be person, thing, person. So it's me, my cell phone, and then the people I call or text with Mm. using my cell phone. So the objects are always connectors in that kind of way. And in my research, uh, I've even found that people's love for their cell phones is correlated with how many friends they have. So if you have a lot of people that you're connecting with through your cell phone, you tend to love your cell phone more. And if you have not so many people that you're making that connection with, you don't love your cell phone as much on average. So what are some of the most commonly loved things? The probably number one thing is nature or animals. Like You can sort of roll them in together, Mm -hmm. especially if you include pets in that category. That is just a huge one for a a lot of people. But there are many, many different things. Um, Hobbies or activities, people tend to love them if they find the activity itself pleasurable and they think of it as part of their identity in some way. Uh, In terms of objects, uh, people often love cell phones are huge right now. Computers are huge right now. Games, sports equipment. Um, food is often right up there, especially if it's a little bit healthy. There are some people who talk about loving desserts and loving chocolate, but not as many as I would have guessed. Yes. Uh, so because it, it, they sometimes feel like the dessert doesn't love them back because it's you know it's bad for them in some way. So, yes, that was very interesting. You write that um, although people you know love things, we sometimes use the word love when we think about something is is excellent. So could you explain the how perceived excellence is an important aspect of love? Perceived excellence. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> A lot of times. When people use the word love and they say, oh, I love your haircut or I love your car, all they really mean is that's a really great haircut or a really nice car. Mm -hmm. They don't actually mean that they have this sort of sense of real love for that thing. Now, people do really love certain things, um, but that's a smaller set. It's like a subset of the things that they use the, the word for. 
usually when people use the word love metaphorically, they're using it just to mean that this is really excellent. And the reason I believe they use the word love that way is it teaches us something about things that people actually do love, that seeing something as excellent is such an important part of the things we actually love that we use the word love as a synecdoche. It's a kind of a a figure of speech to stand in there for excellence uh, when even if we don't really love that thing. I'll throw in one research tidbit here, which is that there have been quite a few studies done where they use brain scan uh, technology, usually an fMRI machine, and they scan the brains of people as the person thinks about a person that they love or if the person thinks about a brand that they love. And they look at what the comparisons and similarities and differences. One of the things that is much more strongly triggered when people think about a brand that they love as opposed to a person, especially if it's a a family member, like a child that they love, is the areas of the brain that produce judgments. So people are much more judgmental about brands than they are about their kids. And the act of loving a brand has a much less unconditional quality to it. Like our love for our children, hopefully, is strongly unconditional. Um, our love for brands tends to be extremely conditional. <laughs> you know, it's conditional on a whole lot of things. And you write that, uh, speaking of brands, being into cool or prestigious brands can take the place of religion in some people's lives. I found that fascinating. Can you talk more about that? Everybody needs a sense of meaning and purpose in their life. Uh, some people find that through religion. Some people find it through volunteer work at nonprofits. Um, people find it through politics. People find it all sorts of ways. But one of the ways that people, some people seek to find that is through elevating their prestige in other people's eyes. The meaning in their life gets very wrapped up in uh, winning prestige um, and respect from other people. Uh, and one of the ways that you're going to go about that in our society is because, because it is such a consumer culture is people go about that through acquiring the, and displaying the right products and brands. Um, that's not always the most emotionally healthy way to live, <laughs> but it is a, a very common phenomenon. Yes, and we do a lot of unhealthy things. We watch a lot of crappy TV and eat a lot of fast food, and uh, you talk about that towards the end of the book. I want to quote from two places in the book, at the beginning and the end, and ask you to elaborate. One's from page 38, where you write, One of the core defining features of love is that it involves caring about people and things even more than they deserve. And uh, similarly, on page 258, you write, at its very core, love is about caring for people and things in ways that exceed the practical benefits we get from them. Talk about that. Yeah. So that, I believe, is the essence of love. I'm going to take a a quick uh, side trip into science for a second here. I believe that the reason love evolved, and this is only my view, is First of all, it evolved in animals long before people were ever around. We call it 
pair bonding in animals, but it's extremely similar. And in some animals, some mammals, it's really the same thing as human love. So this evolved because it was a mechanism that got animals to take care of their children. We all know there are some you know, animal species, lots that where they lay the eggs and then swim off and the animal's done. And there's even some that will eat their own children if they happen to be around because they eat food about that size and they don't really do much for their kids. But at some point, uh, some animals evolved this ability to care about their children. And of course, this gives you a huge evolutionary advantage because then if you're feeding and protecting your children, they tend to survive. And if your children survive, they tend to pass along your genes and you can see how that would work in terms of evolution. So love at its core, it has a sort of altruistic nature to it. Um, and in interpersonal or in modern humans, that's strongest with our kids. It's fairly strong, but a little weaker with our spouses. And it's by far the weakest uh, with brands and products, which is fine as far as I'm concerned. We don't have, in my view, moral obligations to brands the way we do to our children. Some people may be more loyal to brands than they are to their children, though. But um, anyway. That, 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 that's good. <laughs> probably true. A little horrifying. Probably true. Yeah. Even though people are much less altruistic with brands than they are with their kids, thank goodness, there's still some of this that goes on, right? People, if they love a brand and somebody else says something bad about it on social media, they'll rise to its defense, right? When you do that, you're taking your own time and energy and you're putting it into promoting this brand or defending this brand when there's really no direct uh, benefit no practical benefit that you're going to get from that. So that does, even in a weaker form, still extend to the products and the brands that we love, uh, that we have this desire to help them and we care about them and we think they're important, even in ways that go beyond the practical benefits that we get. And in the book, I talk about a, a number of reasons why people would feel that way about brands and how that happens. But often it's because the brand either is connected to a person that they care about or it's connected to themselves, their own sense of identity. Yes. And I have an example of something where love involves caring about people or things more than they deserve in ways that exceed the practical benefits we get from them. My wife is a high-level dressage competitor. So she gets no practical benefit from her dressage horses. Trust me. And actually, they eat and get better medical care than I do. But there's a hierarchy. So there's like the horses, and then there's the dogs, and then our kids, and then the new car she got last week, and then me. And that's okay, because I know my place. But that is, I could not stop thinking about her and her love of this this hobby. And you talk about people with, with hobbies. TV advertising is a powerful channel for business growth, and it's a counterintuitive solution for businesses frustrated by the rising costs of digital marketing. But the traditional process for launching TV campaigns is expensive, time-consuming, and complex. That's why marketing architects flip the traditional process on its head. 
With all-inclusive TV advertising, they invest their own money to produce, analyze, and optimize your TV campaign. All you pay for is media, setting you up for rapid growth at a significant cost advantage. This approach to TV is so revolutionary, they wrote a book about it. It's called All-Inclusive TV, How Booming Brands Are Reimagining TV Advertising. It explores how a variety of brands are using TV to transform their businesses and how you can do the same. For a free copy of the book, visit this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com or visit marketingarchitects.com slash book and tell them you heard about it on the Marketing Book Podcast. I want to go back to our cave dwelling ancestors. Our, you know, talking about the brains. Mm-hmm. You, you write that given that our brain is physically hardwired to form deep emotional connections to people rather than things. And again, the title of the book is "The Things We Love." How did the things? in our life ever become loved? So this is, again, sort of a brain uh, evolutionary question. Like, how did it come to the point where things could be loved? There's two parts to that answer. One part is cultural, and that's, you know, after the Industrial Revolution, we got immensely richer, and now brands and products just play a vastly larger role in our lives than they ever did before. And since we just interact with them and they're more important to us, that sets up the the possibility of a stronger relationship with them than we would have had in the past historically. However, at a biological level, I think it's a happy accident. Um, I think it's nice that people love things. I don't think people evolved specifically to love things. I think we evolved to love people. The mechanisms for loving people get carry over and get applied to things as well. So I'll give you a great example of sort of a carryover effect. It's a little bit different, but if someone really likes sports cars and you show them a really nice sports car, they will literally start to salivate. So salivating makes sense if you are about to eat food. It has a biological function and wetting your mouth and getting those enzymes going. But it doesn't make any sense when you look at a sports car. Yet we take this mechanism that of sort of hunger and desire that evolved for food and we apply it to a sports car. And then these other kinds of things carry over like the salivation, even though that doesn't fully make sense. Another example with brands or products, uh, women, when they are in the most fertile part of their cycle, tend to look around more. If they're in a committed relationship, Uh, They have a slight tendency to look around more at other possible options to see if there are better options elsewhere. And it makes sense that that would be timed with the most fertile part of their menstrual cycle. However, um, when women do that, they also become more open to different products and brands. So if they have sort of a brand loyalty, um, when they reach that part of their cycle, they'll also start looking around to see if there are better brands out there that they might want to uh, get involved with. There's no logical reason why uh, brand loyalty should be tied to fertility, but it does get that. It has that effect because this mechanism that developed for people um, carries over, sort of spills over onto 
uh, our relationships with products. Yes. And just to set up the next section of the questions we want to talk about is you write that there's three situations where the brain overrides its default way of thinking about things and starts thinking about them in a way it normally reserves for people. This is from page 38. You call these three situations relationship warmers because they give emotional warmth to an otherwise cool, practical relationship between a person and a thing. And those are, uh, and we'll talk about these, uh, anthropomorphism, uh, people connectors, and the, a sense of, of self. So can you explain what anthropomorphic thinking is and the role it plays in our love of things? Yeah. So anthropomorphic thinking is something that humans are very prone to. And that's when you Usually it's with sights. You see an object, it looks a little bit like a person. It doesn't have to look all that much like a person, but it's got a face, uh, you know, painted on it or what have you. And your brain takes that and starts thinking about it as if it was a person. Consciously, of course, you know it's not a person, but at a non-conscious level, your brain starts using some of the thought processes that it normally applies to people and applies them to the object. So that can happen if if it looks like a person, but it can also happen if it sounds like a person. For example, Siri on your cell phone uh, anthropomorphizes the cell phone, or if it behaves like a person in certain ways. Um, Our brain is really easily fooled about that. And I think it's because there's never been, you know, as we evolved, there was never a reason for our brain to be skeptical. Right. It was like the people were people and all the, you know, and things were things and that was fine. Now we're sort of confronting our brain with things that kind of look like people and it doesn't have any defenses against that. It just kind of goes with it if it looks like a face. Right. And our brain wants to default to what it does well, which is relate to people. Yes, absolutely. And so that, that's sort of what anthropomorphism is generally. Now in, the situation where people love a brand or love a product, um, what has to happen there is the person has to stop thinking about it simply as a brand or product. And again, start to love it. Love is a, a, a way of relating to a person. So to love a brand, you have to start thinking about it using some of the same ways that you think about people. And if the brand or if the product resembles a person, uh, that's one of the ways that the brain can start doing that. Yeah, and that makes me think of something from one of Dr. Kotler's books, as well as uh, from Mark, one of Mark Schaefer's books, where they talk about the most human brand wins. And there's ways to, to humanize it. What are, what are some of the ways that companies are looking for ways to get consumers to think about their products in you know, anthropomorphic terms? Is that like a car insurance using a gecko as a, sport, a spokesperson? Absolutely. So um, – Spokespeople, both animated geckos, but also real-life people, right? Mm-hmm. If you a celebrity endorser um, is a way – I wouldn't call celebrity endorser anthropomorphism. I guess but it's that a person. More under the, yeah, that'd be more, more under person, thing, person. But um, the most common ways are to actually work with the product itself. So cars, for example, uh, the front of the car – Auto designers call that the face of the car, and they're very conscious about with the headlights as the eyes and the grill as the mouth, what kind of a facial expression they give the car. And most of the time, there's a few cars that they look sort of happy and cheerful, 
And that's very nice and that's uh, attractive in some ways. But a lot of the time, car manufacturers design cars to look aggressive. So they're kind of frowning. The eyes are sort of slanted. It looks a little bit mean. And the reason for that is that we associate those sort of negative facial expressions with the boss. If you think about a business situation, the person at the bottom of the hierarchy is always smiling and saying, yes, sir, yes, sir, I'm happy to do whatever you want. It's the high person in the hierarchy who frowns and doesn't like things. Mm -hmm. Um, And so they give the car that kind of frowny face to give it a sense of power and authority and high status. You mentioned that uh, marketers need to be careful because anthropomorphism is a double-edged sword. How so? Most of the time, the, the most common finding is that if you show people two versions of a product, one that looks a little bit like a person and one you know that is identical in every way but doesn't have that human look to it, they'll on the whole like the human-looking one a little bit more. So that's usually a plus. However, if something goes really wrong, then it's a problem if it, the product is anthropomorphic. Because if it's not, if it's just a plain old product and it isn't working properly, then it's just a problem that you need to fix. But if people think of the product as human in some ways and it starts to malfunction, then they think of it as a jerk, right? It's not just a prob- you know, product that's broken. It's this nasty, arrogant, uncaring person who's not helping me the way they're supposed to help me. Right. And they can get, uh, people get mad. And you see that with computers all the time, right? So mm-hmm. we, you know, we think about like when it rains outside and ruins our plans, we don't get angry at the clouds. We may get frustrated, but we don't see them as humans. So we don't get mad at them. But when your computer malfunctions, almost everyone gets furious with the computer. Not everyone, everyone, but lots of people. They hit their computers. They curse at their computers. Um, and that kind of reaction shows that their brain at some unconscious level is treating the computer as if it was a person because if it was really just, you know, a, a, a natural object like rainfall, you know, you wouldn't have that response. Yes, and there's a great scene from the movie Office Space where they're so frustrated with the printer, <laughs> they take it out into a field with a baseball bat and start destroying it to the music of, damn, it feels good to be a gangster. But I digress. So one other thing I want to ask about is about relationships. You write, you can't understand love without understanding what a relationship is. And uh, I know I sound like a guy saying, what, what is love? What's a relationship? <laughs> explain, <laughs> explain what you mean when you, when you say that. Like, talk about the issue of relationships. Right. Well, one of the, the things that is a little mysterious is how people can love a product or a brand or an object. A new pair of shoes. That, uh, a pair of shoes, for mm-hmm. sure. Given that it seems like sort of a one-way relationship. Whereas our relationships with people seem like two-way relationships, and that's that's a pretty big difference. Yeah, um, even the dogs, it's, it seems more two-way. Absolutely, yeah. So pets, uh, dogs, they're kind of in between. They're they're not things. I do talk a, a fair amount about 
uh, pets in the book, (laughs) even though the title is The Things We Love. And I don't believe dogs are things or cats are things. But, you know, I love my dogs and I wanted to talk about them. And it's my book. So I talk about them. Yeah. And you talk to your dogs just as I do. Absolutely. Most people talk to their dogs and I talk to my dogs in ways that I know when I'm doing it. They have no idea what I'm saying, (laughs) but uh, I, you know, it's, it's somehow rewarding. It's somehow really pleasurable to do that. But with relationships, it turns out that First, our human relationships aren't quite as two-way as we might think. Uh, Much of the time, if you ask people, like, when's the last time you felt just love for this person? You felt love just welling up in your chest. Um, A huge percentage of the time, the other person wasn't in the room. It was just when they were thinking about the other person. They remembered the other person doing something particularly nice for them. Um, And so... A lot of our relationships with people sort of take place in our own imagination um, in ways that we could duplicate, we could think about products in, in a similar kind of way. The flip side is that there are times when people feel like the product is in a two-way relationship with them. Sometimes if it's something that's very responsive, like a musical instrument that you play, you know, you pluck the string and then the sound comes out and there's a sort of back and forth responsiveness with the interaction. That feels very relational. Another way that we feel like we're in a relationship with uh, products or objects is if they give us comfort and a lot of products, foods, um, other kinds of products, music, entertainment, it changes how we feel. It gives us comfort. And that sense of being comforted by the object um, creates a sense of relationship with the object or brand. Like that chocolate chip cookie that doesn't judge me? Absolutely. The chocolate chip cookie that will always be there for you. Mm-hmm. I think it loves me. And that's why you know I'm filled with love, particularly when it's warm. So I want to ask you, there was just one other thing I thought was really, uh, well, there's so many things. I, this is the cool part about the podcast host for this podcast is that I get to pick out the things that I thought were really cool or uh, particularly interesting. And it was on page 74. And this is from that chapter about having a relationship with the thing. You write about salespeople at high-end luxury goods stores are infamous for treating most customers in an aloof or even rude way, as if to say, owners of this brand are in an exclusive club and you're probably not rich or famous enough to be a member, which uh, parenthetically, I, I get told that all the time. When I first learned how common this is, it struck me as not only obnoxious, but also a terrible business practice that must be costing companies a fortune in lost sales. But what does the research tell us about this? The research tells us that it can often increase sales. <laughs> That a lot of times, and I think this works specifically for like high-end prestige-oriented luxury goods. I do not think this would work more generally. But the truth is a lot of people who go into those stores, the, the consumer feels that way too. They feel like I might not be good enough for this brand, right? This brand is supposed to be for movie stars. I might not, you know, I'm not a movie star. Um, and if the store kind of plays hard to get a little bit, it increases the customer's sense that, yes, this is a very elite product that only the fanciest, best people have. And that actually drives the consumer's desire for that product if it's a very aspirational type of brand. 
but I wouldn't try that at, at any other business. And honestly, if it were my brand, I wouldn't do it at all, even if it did make money, just because it just it just seems rather unpleasant and, and there's more pleasant ways to treat people that could also make money. I would agree, but also I think there's uh, it's they're preying on maybe the insecurities or why people want to go buy those uh, luxury brands in the first place, which you also talk about uh, in the book. Just so you know, you're talking to a guy with a 20 year old Toyota Camry <laughs> with 200,000 miles on it, and I know that you uh, you tend to drive your cars forever too. So there was one other thing you talk about on page 76 where you say uh, sometimes when you're interviewing people, you do a lot of research. And you're asking them to rank the things they love and explain why they love one item more than another. What is there some commonalities that you find there? Yeah, this is one of the things that I found really puzzling uh, when it first started to happen. Right, so people have uh, listed a whole bunch of different things that they love, and I've asked them to rank from those from top to bottom in terms of how much they love them. And I say, okay. You know, for item one, you love item one more than item two. Uh, what's the difference? Why is that? Well, you might think they would say, well, it gives me, you know, item one gives me more pleasure than item two. Or item one is, you know, higher quality than item two or something along those lines. But the actual by far number one answer I get is I spend more time each day with item one than I do with item two. Um, Hmm. It's just a sort of quantitative measure about how much time they spend. Uh, One example that was very telling to me was someone who said, well, I used to love my iPod. This was back in the day when people were using iPods. I used to love my iPod. I don't anymore. Um, I loved it because I used to have a long commute to work and I took it with me. And so I would listen to that thing for, you know, three hours every day. And that was really great. Now I've got a short walk to work. um, And so I hardly listen to it at all. And therefore I don't love it. And my first gut reaction, of course, you don't say anything like this. My first gut reaction was like, oh, that's terrible. That iPod did nothing to, to, to lose your love, right? It, it didn't malfunction. It, you know, nothing, it did nothing bad, but yet you're, 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 you're putting it aside in this way. And it was clearly just because, you know, the, the amount of time you spent with it seemed to have this causal relationship. So the mystery was solved sometime later when I was doing a study and I needed a measure that I could use, just a certain, you know, number of questions I could ask people to figure out and measure how close of a relationship they had with another person. So I started looking at these commonly used scales that, are, that, that you'll use to measure closenesses in, in interpersonal relationships. And one of the things that they all started with were questions how many hours a day do you spend with this other person? And that turns out to be the best predictor of how close your relationship is, um, providing those hours spent together have a sort of voluntary element to Mm. them. Yeah, implications for office romances, I suppose. Absolutely. There's a work, you know, you don't, you aren't necessarily close to people at work because you're not voluntarily spending time with them. But if it's a person that you voluntarily spend more hours with, that really indicates 
a closer relationship and is part ah. of a closer relationship. Uh-huh. And so I think that's what's going on when people use that, how much time do I spend with this product or with this brand? Uh, and one of the things I've gone over with some of the consulting clients is how can you apply this information? Now, you the, the, the contact time needs to be positive. If it's, you know, if I spend so much time with this product because it doesn't work properly and I'm always fixing it, that is... <laughs> Not going to get, that's not going to create love for people. Important distinction there. Thank you. Yeah. But if you look at um, Apple, for example, people, Apple is definitely the number one most loved brand, uh, probably in the world, certainly in the United States now. Um, Not only do people spend a huge amount of time with their, you know, iPhones and laptops and other things they have, but the Apple brand is consistent across all of those different products. So they always feel like they're spending time with Apple, whether they're on their phone or with their laptop or, you know, doing something else. However, there are other brands or other companies that have a lot of different brands and people may spend a lot of time with that company's products, but they don't realize that they have this large relationship with the same underlying company, that it, it touches their life in all of these different places. So one of the things we've been looking at at, on a consulting basis is, you know, how can you get consumers to see those different interactions with different products as part of the same relationship and therefore see that relationship as more important and closer in their lives? Well, let's jump to the second thing that I mentioned, uh, the people connectors. Can you talk about why so many of the things we love connect us to other people. This goes back to the the fundamental issue with loving things that in order to, to, you you can think a product is great if it functions very well, but in order to go from just thinking it's great to loving it, again, you've got to get the brain to start thinking about it using some of the same mechanisms that the brain thinks about, uses when it thinks about people. Mm-hmm. And so one of the ways to do this is to closely associate the product or the brand with a person. Now, people do this with celebrity endorsers. Uh, people do this with salespeople do this all the time. They, sele- they associate their company's products with they themselves as, as a human being. Um, it happens very frequently, not as a result of marketing, but if you get something as a gift from another person, then you come to associate that object with the person who gave you the gift. And you can always tell that this is going on because the love for the object or the product rises and falls with people's feelings about the person that it's associated with. Mm -hmm. So uh, one example I use in the book, uh, there was a man who got from his father a gift of some collectible gold coins. At one point, he was very proud of those coins and felt you know, a real strong attachment to them. Later, he found out that his father had been having an affair for many, many years. His parents broke up. He was very angry at his father. Well, what did he do? He got rid of the coins. He didn't even sell them. He gave them away. He didn't want to have anything to do with them. So his feeling about the coins was directly tied to his relationship with his father. And that's a giveaway there. But what happens in in terms of your brain, if you have that strong connection between the product and the person, um, 
then your brain thinks about the product in human terms and you can love it because your brain considers it part of the person mm -hmm. that you associate it with. Yeah. Well, let's jump to the last one, the, the sense of self. I want to quote from, um, and the sense of self, I guess that had the most chapters. And you, I think you even talk about how really it's, it's the most important one of these three that we're discussing. And uh, I want to quote from page 109 where you pose some questions and ask if you could uh, elaborate. You write, in a particular way, the people and things we love do become part of ourselves. But how does that happen? How do objects and activities change from being typical things out there in the world to loved things that are part of our identities? Yeah, this is actually, there's a long list of ways uh, that this can happen. Um, and I'll have mercy on the listeners and, and not go through all of them. But there are some that are particularly... I have plenty of audio tape I bought at Costco this morning. So we're... <laughs> <laughs> go through. Yeah. Go through. So first, let me explain what it means for a product or a brand to become part of a person's self. Mm -hmm. Because when I first started hearing about this, I was in the PhD program, and it just did not make sense to me. I think, okay, um, I can't, you know, read the product's mind or this, if another person becomes part of me, I don't read their mind. You know, so there seems to be a very big difference between me where I sort of know all my own thoughts and this other person where I don't, what could it mean for them as a human being to become part of who I am or for an object to become part of who I am? And what I realized is that there's different parts of ourselves. There's our consciousness which is the part that sort of we think, thinks and experiences. And things don't really become part of our consciousness. But there's a separate part of ourselves, which is our identity. And that's a category. We have a whole bunch of things, including our bodies, that we think of as part of ourselves. And then once an object is in that category, all kinds of very interesting things start happening because your brain treats it differently from other objects. So a simple way to know if something is part of your identity is put in that category by your brain is to ask yourself, if someone were to compliment this thing, would you feel a little bit proud? Or if somebody were to you know, derogate it, would you feel a little bit insulted? Like you yourself have been praised or insulted. Mm -hmm. That's a, a pretty good giveaway there. So then the question is, all right, if that's what it means to be part of the self, something that I would feel a little pride if someone praised it or a little insult if someone criticized it, how do things get into that category? Mm -hmm. um, using them a lot, having a lot of contact with them makes a big difference, especially if it's something that you eat or something that you uh, goes on your body directly. Um makes a big difference. Uh, that's why, for example, you know, shampoo is soap and floor cleaner is soap and laundry detergent is soap. But the advertising around shampoo is often all about identity. You know, what kind of a person uses the shampoo? And often it will have certain scents put into it and flowers and all these other ingredients that make it um, sort of seem like something you'd want to become part of yourself. Or like a male-female really divide, yeah. The male-female divide, yeah, absolutely. Like, I'm a male, so I want a men's shampoo. 
right? And women often want women's shampoos. There's nothing in the shampoo that makes it for men or women. But with a floor cleaner, I don't want a men's floor cleaner or a women's floor cleaner because I'm not seeing that as part of my identity. So uh, it has to do with that. It also has to do with how much you think about it because your brain, uh, it takes work for your brain to put something, to, to, to integrate something into your identity. So when you fall in love with a person, one of the things that happens is you start thinking about them obsessively. All of that thought, that's actually your brain doing the mental work to integrate that person into your identity. And the same is true for brands and products. Um, if we start obsessing about them, that's our brain doing the mental work to make it part of ourselves. And one of the measures we use to see how much someone loves something is we'll ask them, how often do thoughts about that thing just sort of pop into your head on their own. And that's a very good predictor of how much they love the item. Yeah. And there was a great quote on page 142 where you, you write, when we fall in love with something, that experience shows us a little more of who we are. In this way, the things we love are like a magic compass pointing us toward one of the things we want most in the world, knowledge of who we really are. Interesting. So, can you talk about the, the role the intrinsic and extrinsic rewards play in uh, finding our authentic self and kind of how they affect one another? Sure. So let me start by defining intrinsic versus extrinsic rewards. Basically, if something is pleasurable to use, if the process of using a brand or using a product is itself pleasurable in some way, people see it as intrinsically rewarding. If the process is not enjoyable, the user experience is not enjoyable, but the resulting benefits are important, people see that as extrinsically rewarding. So an uh, example I have with two women both talking about their shoes they use for working out. Um, one woman says she doesn't love her shoes uh, because she really loves being in good shape and she sees exercising as just a means to an end. I don't love my shoes. I'm just using them, right? I'm just using them to get in shape. Whereas the other woman says she does love her shoes because, yes, she likes being in shape, but she really enjoys exercising. So the time she spends with her shoes is enjoyable, and she feels that she's not just using them in that way, that she actually loves them because she, get, she gets this pleasure from the experience. To go back then to your specific question, a lot of times we'll try things and we'll have either sort of a, a pleasant or an unpleasant reaction to them. And based on whether we enjoy them or not, we jump to the conclusion frequently that, you know, this is, this is true to me. Right. I, I tasted this food. I really liked it. Therefore, I am the kind of person that likes this food. Right. I tasted sushi for the first time. I loved it. I am the adventurous person who likes sushi um, or, or some other food. This is, I think, a very real part of how people come to understand who they are by just looking at their reactions to what television do you like? What movies do you like? What politicians do you like? Etc. But I also, in the book, talk a lot about how people can learn to love things. In fact, most of the things we love 
we actually learned to love them, but we did it when we were younger and don't remember the process. Mm -hmm. So with music, some people say, oh, I listened to that song. I listened to 10 seconds. I didn't like it. You know, it's not for me. But they forget about the fact that when they were in junior high school, they heard a lot of music that they didn't like, but they heard it over and over again. And eventually they did come to like it. And now they look back at that as the music that really, you know, identifies them as sort of who they are. Which takes us back so, to the rock band Kiss. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> I remember how much my teachers hated that when I was in high school, but but I digress. Yeah. So one of the things, you know, marketing aside, just for our lives as consumers, um, you don't have to learn to like all kinds of different things if you don't want to. But I do encourage people as consumers to give things a chance. Remember, if you've ever had kids and you teach them that you, you've taught them to eat vegetables, mm -hmm. they have to try that vegetable over and over again before they develop a taste for it. But they often do develop a taste for it. And the things that symbolize adulthood that we like. If you're someone like me, I enjoy uh, whiskey every now and again. Mm. Nobody likes whiskey the first time they taste it. Um, but you genuinely come to love it and enjoy it through the experience of trying it multiple times. Mm -hmm. So if there's something that, you know, you might have an interest in, um, don't judge too quickly. Yes. What kind of whiskey do you like? Oh, I, you know, what's interesting. I used to drink scotch and I used to drink bourbon. Um, I have had to cut way down because sadly, whiskey gives me terrible acid reflux. Oh. I recently tried some Irish whiskey, which I always sort of turned my nose up at because it wasn't the famous thing to drink, unless you're, of course, from Ireland, and realized that I had been missing out, that Irish whiskey is actually fabulous. So um, I would on occasion try a sip of that, but I can't get into whiskeys the way I used to. Yeah, well, that's that's unfortunate. I recently interviewed Aidan McCullen from Ireland, and I told him that in the week leading up to his interview, as I was reading his book, I did extensive product testing of Irish whiskey just to kind of psych myself up for the interview. I don't remember anything about his book, but I, it was a great week. <laughs> no, I'm just well, kidding. The, the, the sacrifices we make. Well, our, thank you. Thank you, Dr. Ahuvia. I appreciate you saying that. There's just one other thing I want to ask you about that I just found so fascinating. And doggone it, you had to put it at the back of the book here. It's about the thing related to mosaic. So mosaic, I may not be describing this right, but that's a research where they organize uh, lifestyle groups. I can remember using this back when I worked in New York, uh, like s about 71 different lifestyle groups. I'll give you an example, like um, uh, young city solos, young and middle-aged singles living active and energetic lifestyles in the metropolitan area, or the one they call flourishing families, affluent middle-aged families and couples earning prosperous incomes and living very comfortable, active lifestyles. You know, so you explain that, and you then go on to write that you know, for most people, looking at 71 different groups just presents a bewildering mess. Amen, brother. So what you did is you, in this chapter, the what, what the things we love say about us, you explain a few of the most important principles that give rise to lifestyle groups to begin with. And you write, because people in a given lifestyle group tend to love the same things, understanding the differences among people that give rise to these groups provides a lot of insight into why people love the things they do. Can you 
talk about those things because it really did, in fact, simplify. If you can cut something down from 71 to two things, <laughs> it is quite helpful. And I thank you for that. Can you talk about that? And specifically, let's talk about this concept of economic capital and cultural capital. I thought this was one of the most fascinating parts of the book. Thank you, because it was one of the most pleasurable to write. Oh. And I also, I think about it all the time. It just It's the kind of thing where it keeps coming up, and I use it to explain, you know, to understand people's behavior uh, over and over again. Yes, so even, the, I, even the news. After reading that, I, I think I understand a little bit better about, uh, well, why people do what they do, but go ahead. Yeah. So the it starts off um and this uh comes most famously it's associated with a French sociologist named Pierre Bourdieu and then uh Douglas Holt who's a marketing expert and consultant and was in the PhD program uh with me uh taught me a lot about this uh as well but the the fundamental idea is that people really want the respect and admiration of other people. Mm -hmm. And that's a, a fundamental motivation that we all have. Um, sometimes it can get a little excessive, but it's, it's there. It's, it's there for everyone. And when people pursue that, there's, in our culture, lots of different ways they can, but two that are particularly important. One is economic capital. Capital in this phrase just means something that will win you the esteem or prestige in other people's eyes. So economic capital is how much money you have, right? If you've got a lot of money, then in our society, that wins you uh, social status. Cultural capital isn't the amount of money you have, but it's status from being, well, right now, it comes down to being smart, sophisticated, very educated, and of late, um, also politically progressive. That's sort of what, what dominates uh, the, the mainstream idea of what will bring people status. Mm -hmm. I think virtue is probably part of that too, right? And virtue is absolutely on that list. Yeah. Absolutely. Being virtuous is on that list. And so, as we grow up, we intuitively understand in our community with the people around us what brings status to people. And then we internalize that and we come to love things that bring us status. And it is absolutely sincere. A lot of times people think, oh, if, if, something, if you love something and it brings you status, you must not really love it right? You're just using it for the status. And that can happen sometimes. But it's much more common that people have an intuition about what's going to get bring them status. And then they learn to genuinely love those things. And so the things that people love differ a lot by what kind of cultural ideas or what kind of cultural practices they think will will gain them status. And you can look at groups based on how much cultural prestige they have or cultural capital and how much money they have. And so to give a, a few just sort of extreme examples, um, some sort of the nouveau riche are people who have a lot of money, but not a lot of cultural sophistication. If you look at 
your typical English professor. There's someone who's got a lot of cultural sophistication, but usually not very much money. There are people who are have really neither. So a typical person maybe in the working class doesn't get a lot of prestige from money because they don't have much, and they don't get a lot of prestige from being educated and sophisticated because they don't have a lot of formal education either. Um, and one of the results of this is that we have a lot of people walking around who feel a little bit disrespected. And I think you see that in the way people behave in our society, that there are people who are very sensitive about feeling that they are not respected by the society and longing for that respect. And some of the hostility that people have towards mainstream society, I think, comes from this feeling of, of being disrespected because they don't have really either of these resources. The one thing that I will add here is that having money doesn't change the kind of things you want, but it changes what you can afford to buy. Whereas cultural capital having sort of striving for cultural sophistication, that changes the type of thing that you enjoy and the type of thing that you want. So if you have a person who's, say, in the middle class, if they think about how could I increase my prestige in society, if they look up at people who have more money from them, excuse me, more money than them, they see people who like the same kinds of things they like, who seem like the same kind of person they are, but who just has more money. And they can identify with that wealthier person, and they can feel a sense of commonality with them. Whereas if instead they look at someone who has more cultural sophistication, who gets their prestige from being very highly educated, etc., they see someone who likes different things from them who has different values from them, who they don't feel like that person is like them. And even though they might want to have more prestige, they don't feel a sense of community with that person who has a, a different level of cultural capital from them. And as a result, it's often easier for groups to sort of admire and feel camaraderie with people who are wealthier than them than it is for them to feel connected to people who have different levels of cultural capital. Yes. Oh, so fascinating. And of course, as I was reading, I'm thinking back through all the elections that have happened and why people aspire to certain brands. Now, I want to read one last thing from the book on page 209, which is going to upset half the audience and the other half is probably going to be happy. But I Again, I, I just found this fascinating. You write, regarding general cultural capital, there has been a gradual shift away from conservative values and toward liberal values as a source of social status. This is just an objective fact. And I should say for the listeners out there, I am as Died in the wool, liberal as they came, as they come, right? <laughs> so I am not. I, I, you know, this is is not some sort of a criticism. Well, Professor, just, let me interject one thing. If I read a book like yours and I can't tell what the author's politics are, that's a good book. I read this book; it never came up. I could, I, I wouldn't have known except that you just said what your your preference is there. This book is not a political screed, folks. Thank you. Thank you. And I really, and I think this point is, is important. And just the, the way to think about it, um, if you've seen Downton Abbey, and I think many people have, you mm -hmm. imagine like the wealthy family 
at the center of that story. I don't know about that those characters, because of course those are made for modern television. But if you think about the people who would have actually been in their position, those sort of English aristocrats, those people had a lot of the cultural capital. Like they had the cultural prestige. They knew how to hold their fork correctly. They knew how to talk correctly. They used, quote, proper grammar. They read the classics. They listened to classical music. They were politically extremely conservative, and they were conservative in their social mores as well. So they had a lot of, and they also, by the way, had all the money too, right? So they had a monopoly yeah. on most, most everything, right? They had a lot of the cultural capital, almost all of the economic capital, mm-hmm. the money, and they had, you know, the status and, and they were high class. And that's why we use the word classy. You know, this is a classy person. What we mean is this is a person who seems like they come from the, the upper social classes. If you compare that person to the type of person who is in our society now seen as culturally admirable. So not necessarily someone who's wealthy. The person who is now seen as culturally admirable is still very well read, but they're not a snob. They may listen to classical music, but they don't only listen to classical music. They also listen to popular music because, as they would say, they're not a snob, mm-hmm. right? They're very adventurous in what they're eating. They don't eat conservatively. They try all these different global cuisines. Um, they are very open to new things and new experiences. Um, and they are very egalitarian in their social and political values. So I think that being egalitarian is a good thing. I support that. But there's no question that the social status has sort of changed over time. And there are certain outcomes of that. So uh, forgive me for getting a little bit into politics, but I do think it's very interesting. If you talk to many people who are politically on the liberal side, they will say, like if you look at Bernie Sanders, Bernie Sanders says, we, the people, And he's the liberal senator from Vermont in the United States. Right. The liberal senator from Vermont, he says, we should all unite because we are all together as part of one community who earn, you know, against, who earn in the bottom 99% or whatever it is of the income level against the 1%, those tiny super rich people. They're the other, right, who aren't like us. And so he defines things in this economic way. He sets up an us and them in this economic way. Whereas uh, Trump was all about uh, cultural capital. And he says, no, we, the people who are middle to lower class in terms of cultural capital, we are all together. And the people who are the others who we have to unite against are the really educated people, those sort of educated liberal elites. And liberals hate this and don't, you know, have a very hard time understanding how is it that anyone could see them as elite when in their mind, it's so obvious that, you know, the billionaires, they're the elites, we're not the elites, but they're just elites in different ways. The billionaires are the economic elites, right? The college professors and the journalists and the authors and the television writers, those are the cultural elites. And what Trump was able to show is, you know, that it's possible to get people to sort of unify behind this definition of us as, 
you know, different from the cultural elites, that that's very effective. And it's sometimes harder to get people to unify behind an us, which is the economic mainstream versus the economic elites. Yes. And <clears throat> this is one more reason why this book was uh, more of an adventure for me. It just, I didn't, I didn't uh, understand all this. And you've given me this much clearer lens <laughs> from which to understand the world, not just the the politics out there. But uh, that's why I found it so uh, so interesting and, and and surprising. So, well, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? To get people to love your brand, you need three basic steps. The first two, every listener, I hope, will not find new. Well, let's hope so. Yeah, <laughs> let's hope. Yeah. Let's hope that product excellence is not a new concept to people. Yeah, and that an enjoyable product experience is not a uh, enjoyable user experience is not uh, a new concept to to the listeners. There, I but think those, is, I think it's often overlooked, particularly when a company <laughs> will say, "We just need to do do more marketing." No, that advertising is not going to solve your crappy product problem. <laughs> That's why the joke. From my ad days, we would joke and say, nothing kills a crappy product faster than really great advertising. Yes, I, I, I'm very familiar, and I, and I agree. But at least uh, at least intellectually, people have heard of those ideas. <laughs> All right, uh, thank you for checking the, those boxes. The new bit. Well, I want to make it clear that you need to check those boxes. If yes. those boxes are not checked, do not pass go. Right. right? Do not move on to stage three because yes. you need to you know, you need to fix those things first. Um, but the new bit is this idea that the human brain evolved for mostly for thinking about people. Of course, it does a lot of other things, but it's got a, a great deal of mechanisms that are purpose built for thinking about people. This is called the social brain thesis, and certainly not something I came up with. Um, and that love is one of these mechanisms that evolved for specifically other people, but people do apply it not just to people, they apply it to other things. And in order for them to apply it to something else, there has to be some way that that sort of happens. And that can happen either by the product or brand being anthropomorphic, it looks like a person, it sounds like a person, and so the brain treats it a little bit like a person, or the product or brand is associated with some other person out there. Maybe it's a celebrity endorser, or maybe it's a friend of the person who owns it. Or the third is they see the product or brand as part of their own identity, in which case, since they're a person, it becomes part of a person in that way. Yes, and uh, you mentioned the uh, social brain from page 246, because the human brain, and particularly the neocortex, evolved largely to help us succeed at social relationships, we have what many scientists call a social brain. Very, very important. Yeah. Great answer. Great advice. So is there one thing a listener could do today to put in action one of the ideas from the book that uh, maybe we talked about? Absolutely. Brand love isn't going to be an appropriate strategy for every brand. But if you have a brand that you, it's sort of a high involvement brand, consumers interact with it intensely and they need to have some sort of strong attachment to it in order for you to close the, the deal, then it really makes sense to actually measure how much people 
love your brand. It turns out independent work that I did not do, by independent, I mean someone other than me, researchers, Mansoor Kamatov and, and his colleagues did, have found that brand love, by measuring brand love, you get the best predictor of brand loyalty, better than many other sort of alternative measures that are out there. And so I would encourage people to actually go out there and measure love. And I wouldn't do that. You can do it just by asking people, how much do you love this brand? Um, but there are definitely better ways of doing that. And as an academic, I will give them away for free. I have oh. a paper. I have a paper where I can, you know, you can post it on the website. It's got a scale that people can use a, a number of different versions from shorter to longer. Yeah. You're not going to want to do this where you, it's not going to be like a satisfaction measure where you ask every single person who uses the product. Um, it, it works better and more easily if you take a, a sample of people and you incentivize them to pay attention to what you're saying, pay them a little bit of money or something along those lines, and then you know just measure things more accurately with that sample of people. But people can use the scale. It's actually a version of it that's in the book, now that I think about it. It's called the Love of Things Quiz when it's in the book. Oh, at the beginning of the book, yeah. Yeah, on page 10. You can take that and uh, convert it into, you know, a love of my brand quiz. One of the things that some companies do, and I do recommend this, if you're able, is that we've worked with a lot of companies to customize that, to do research with their consumers and to tweak it here and there and add a few questions and drop a few questions to get something that really nails down a, a good measure of love for their particular industry um, and their type of product. But you don't absolutely need to do that. You can just use the the measure that's in, in the book to begin with. And so I would recommend that people track that and, and measure love for your brand or the competitor's brand and see how you fare, as well as what's nice about the measure is it gives you some clues if you're not doing well. It can give you some clues about why you might not be doing well, which you won't get if you just ask like a, a one question, do you love this thing? Now, is that uh, something that I might be able to link to on your episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com? Is it like a PDF I or something? I will absolutely. Um, so I'll give you two links. Oh, okay. Uh, one will go to my website where they can do this quiz online. And oh, perfect. A score so that you can put in like, I'm talking about my glasses. And then uh -huh. you rate your glasses on these couple of items and it gives you your love score. Um, I'll also attach a paper, which is an academic paper that Rick Bogosi and Rajiv Batra, two very frequent collaborators with me uh, and I have written. And that has different versions of the scale and it goes into all the testing. And so it's, if you want to get serious yeah. about it, you'll play. Yeah, well, excellent. It. And I'm going to have you know links to everything else, but that's I appreciate you uh, offering that up to the to the listeners so they can find this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com and and go there, and then they'll be able to reach you and all that sort of thing. Well, question I really was uh, very interested in asking you is that uh, looking back on your career, what books have most inspired it? You know, I'm not going to answer with books. I'm going to talk about papers was the truth is I read a lot of scientific papers and uh, marketing academic scientific research into marketing is much more paper driven than book driven. Okay. So I will say. Well, interesting. Yeah. Here we go. Yeah. Just change it up. 
Change it up. So I will say a lot of work by Russell Belk, who I've already mentioned. He's the person thing, person guy. And he's also very well known for his work about how uh, brands and products become part of a person's sense of self and sense of identity. I'll also mention work by the psychologists Arthur and Elaine Aaron. And I really use their theory of love as the foundation for my own work on love. And they came up with a lot of the scientific evidence around this idea that when you love a person, because they were looking at interpersonal love, when you love a person, you are integrating that person into your own sense of identity, into how you see and think about yourself. They become a, a part of your larger sense of identity. And they generated a lot of fascinating scientific evidence to support that idea, which of course is an ancient idea. People have talked about that for millennia, but they really brought a lot of the science to it. And then I'll also mention Susan Fournier, who some people may already be familiar with. She does work on people's relationships with brands, and it sort of complements my work. My work tends to be about how much people love things. Is it strong, medium, weak, non-existent, etc.? Her work isn't about more or less of something. It's about what types of metaphors do people use to understand their relationship with the brand? So is the brand a loyal friend? Is it a one-night stand? Is it a competitor, an adversary? Right. So she has a lot of different work on that, including a really nice Harvard Business Review piece called Unlock the Mysteries of Your Customer Relationships in 2014. So I would put those three people there for the moment. Interesting. Yeah. And I'm just looking up some of them now. I will try to include links to either their papers or their websites or, or wherever I can to find uh, so that people- I can, can help you with that. For oh, sure. great. Yeah. So people can learn more about them. Just looking up Susan Fournier yeah. right now. Very interesting. She's with uh, she's at Boston University? Yeah. yeah. She's now, I believe, the dean of the uh, business school there. Yes. I see. Very interesting. Okay. Well, super. Well, that's a great answer. Well, are there any recent or upcoming books that you have heard of or that you recommend or looking forward to uh, digging into, reading? Sure. Well, I'm actually going to give quickly on a little list. The first are books – well, first, I'm going to start with Zoe Chance, of course, because she said it was so nice as to mention my book. You're required by podcast law to mention her. That's right. So her, her book is called Influence is Your Superpower. And, and it's good. It's God, really good. It's really good. I'm not just mentioning it because she said nice things about me, but she is a huge expert on influence. She's at Yale University, uh -huh. and her book makes that expertise available to everyone. So it's really worth very accessible. Is yeah. yeah, yeah, really good. Another person who I was not familiar with until I heard him on your podcast, Nicholas Webb, who has the book "What Customers Hate." Um, yes. Even though you might think the hate guy and the love guy wouldn't agree, we actually agree on almost everything, at least from what he said on your podcast. He talks about the need to eliminate hate points in, as people interact with your brand. Yes. Um, and also he talks about the need to boost the love points. Uh, my research shows that one of the first steps in boosting the love points is eliminating the hate points. So we're, we're very much in sync there. No, well, I'd and, be happy to introduce you. He's been on before. He wrote uh, What Customers Crave, and uh, he wrote a brilliant book on innovation, and then What Customers Hate. And what was so interesting is in it, he explains, as you started to touch on there, is that companies will 
you know, uh, in, in a good but misguided way, think, oh, we need to make everything great for our customers. Actually, first find out what they hate. In other words, <laughs> stop the bleeding. <laughs> right. If you find out what they hate, not only can you fix that, it's going to give you insights into things that may, might make your product even more competitive. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then along the lines of another person who I got turned on to through your podcast, uh, Donald Miller, whose book, Building a Story Brand, is a huge bestseller. Um, Actually, I, I haven't envy- interviewed him. Oh, you didn't? I met him in Cleveland a few weeks ago. And of course, I said, hey, you know, I'd love to have you on the show because they had sent me copies of his books. But I don't think he does podcast interviews that much. But it is a great book, Building a Story well- Brand. Phenomenal. Who's the story brand guy I heard on your podcast? I looked, I tried to find um, the name and I Googled this and came up with Donald Miller and I may be talking. You did an interview with a person who talked about the story brand. Uh, Well, it's been brought up and there's been a number of books about the use of stories. Well, maybe this will be one that we cut out. (laughs) This is what I remember. Well, no, that's a great book, Donald Miller's. Yeah, but I've had others about stories. So there was there was a guy who was on your podcast. You're sure? Okay, (laughs) I'm kidding. About I am really sure. I remember him. Okay, and he talked about this. Unless you know what, there's some possibility, and this is what editing is for. There's some possibility that there was some other podcast, and I somehow am confusing it, but I really don't think so. I'm pretty sure it was on your podcast. I remember he talked about this idea that people used to talk about, like the user is the hero or the product is the hero, Uh and the idea he said you should never have the product be the hero. Uh The product should always be a helpful friend. The user is always the hero. And the product is this helpful ally that helps the user succeed and become the hero that the user was meant to be. Oh, okay. Well, you know what? I have a very attentive audience. I hope there's some of them are still listening to this episode. <laughs> and if they if it, if it rings the bell for you all, let me know, and I'll add that link to the to the website page. Because oh, that's some, funny. Yeah, I've had some yeah, uh, yeah, that's books like, about oh, that. Yeah. All but right. Very Donald good. Miller's yeah. is a good one. And if anyone knows Donald, and I'm sure he's listening to this, you know, you're welcome to come on the podcast, but he's he's a very busy guy. Uh, so so I do want to introduce, since those were ones that I think um, your audience would be familiar with because if they're regular listeners, I wanted to mention briefly two others that probably they're not familiar with. So one is a book called The Power of Us by Jay Van Bevel and Dominic Packer. And whereas my work shows how our relationships with objects are usually really about relationships with people, they're Mm -hmm. all kind of relationships with people in disguise, their work shows how the way we experience life and the way we experience reality as a whole is also shaped by our relationships with people. So it's not a marketing book, but it has a very similar sort of intellectual theme there. And the last one is The Art of Insubordination by Todd Cashton. I I love the name. I have been insubordinate my whole life. It is just, it is just who I am, but I've not always done it in a very artful way. And the idea that you can do that better, right? That you can, make change within an organization or go against the grain, but doing it in a strategic and smart way that gets results. 
that's a great idea. And the book can be really helpful if you're in that kind of a situation where maybe at work, there's an idea or a direction that people are taking that you think is not so helpful and you want to go against the grain a bit, but you want to do it wisely. It could be an extremely useful book for people. Interesting. The Art of Insubordination. I can think of one company commander I had in the Army who probably thought I would have written that. But it's uh, The Art of Insubordination, How to Dissent and Defy Effectively by Todd Cashton. Fascinating. And the other one is The Power of Us, Harnessing Our Shared Identities to Improve Performance, Increase Cooperation, and Promote Social Harmony. Fascinating. I don't think I knew about either one of those, which is kind of why I love asking that question of my guests. So, <laughs> great, great. You're, we're going to have really good show notes. Uh, you know, Your website page is going to have a lot of really rich uh, info, so make sure to visit it, everybody, because that's where we're going to put all the links. And we're also going to include links to like all the books and all the papers that we can so that this is going to turn into a very nice resource page and uh we'll include a link to your site and your linkedin profile i don't believe you're on twitter are you nope and the reason we're going to have all that in part is so people can find what they need but also um if you listener if you would please reach out to um Aaron in uh, some way, you know, LinkedIn or message or email, and thank him uh, for being a guest on the Marketing Book Podcast. Congratulate him on this really special book that was such a joy to read. Guests on the show have talked about how much they enjoy hearing from listeners who heard their interview. And I could say that even the host, you know, <laughs> maybe every day or a couple times a week, I'll hear from somebody who comes out of the woodwork and says, hey, I've been listening to your show for five years. Or they'll say, hey, I just found your show. And they'll have me, a, you know, they'll just say, thanks for the show. Or they'll, they'll be able to ask me for a book recommendation. It really makes my day. I mean, it really, I'm not that busy, folks. I, <laughs> I can't uh, check my uh, my messages on LinkedIn to, to find out about. So, but it, it really, I just love hearing from the authors who've been on the show saying, man, I, you got a very talkative group of uh, of listeners, and they like hearing from Marketing Book Podcast listeners, and yes, not just because Marketing Book Podcast listeners are so ridiculously good-looking. And if you are listening on your smartphone and you've subscribed to the Marketing Book Podcast on your favorite podcast app like Spotify or Apple Podcasts, all of these links can be found by going to this episode right now and clicking on this episode's website link. The book is The Things We Love, How Our Passions Connect Us and Make Us Who We Are. The author is Aaron Ahuvia. Aaron, thank you very much for joining us on the Marketing Book Podcast. Oh, thank you so much for the opportunity. And that closes the book on another episode of the Marketing Book Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it and found it helpful. Special thanks to this episode's sponsor, Marketing Architects, creators of the all-inclusive TV advertising concept that's so revolutionary, they wrote a book about it. For a free copy of the book, All-Inclusive TV, How Booming Brands Are Reimagining TV Advertising, visit this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com or visit marketingarchitects.com slash book and tell them you heard about it on the Marketing Book Podcast. And if you're one of the legions of listeners who have left an iTunes review, please let me return your kind favor by mailing you some Marketing Book Podcast stuff. Just send me your mailing address anywhere in the world, and I'll drop it in the mail. And remember the words of the late, great Jim Rohn, who said, Formal education will make you a living. Self-education will make you a fortune. 